going to read scripture this morning from Hebrews chapter 4, <coughs> verses 14 through 16. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect sympathizes or has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then have confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Um, how many of y'all read ahead this week? How many of y'all, after you read ahead, began to pray for me? Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I appreciate those prayers. Um, and in complete seriousness, in all seriousness, uh, uh, I just I need to pause and just just pray right now. Father God, um, in complete humility, come before you right now, desiring your Holy Spirit to speak through this text. For generations, faithful men of God have been studying this text and arriving to some different points of view. And I pray, Father God, this morning that as we study this passage, we do so with absolute reliance on the Spirit, with humility to respect those faithful servants of God. And Lord God, we just pray so much that this text would challenge us and we'd hear the challenges of the author of Hebrews we'd wrestle with it in our own lives. Lord, I pray that our preconceptions and the things that we, um, the filters that we have, Lord God, that we have developed over a lifetime, Lord God, would be silenced and set aside this morning so that we can hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Begin this morning, um, first of all, speaking to those who, that may be newer to church or maybe you've come this morning um, trying to find out what, what we do on a Sunday morning by gathering together as believers and why we do this. We're going to dive into a topic that has been very controversial in churches for a long time. And it breaks my heart that passages like this, instead of uniting the body of Christ, have divided it. And it will take the coming of the King. 
to unite all believers once again in one voice in worshiping and glorifying God, where we will see Scripture perfectly in the full revelation of Jesus Christ as we are before him. But until that day comes, we wrestle with this text, and we wrestle with things, Lord, that, 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 that can, can kind of pull us in, in different directions. And my, my desire this morning is to approach this text from a little different perspective. So if you're new to church this morning, I will do my best to explain things in terms that um, are easy to understand. I'm trying not to go huge, really heady or academic this morning, but we're dealing with a complex issue, okay? There, when you study um, at seminary or you go to Bible college, there are some different schools of thought regarding theology. There's a systematic approach to theology. And a systematic approach to theology basically says people look at the word of God and they divide, not divide the word of God. I don't want to say that because that's not truthful. But they, there's topics like theology proper, which is the study of God. And there's Christology, which is the study of Christ. And there's pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. And there's hamartiology, which is the study of sin. How many of you want to attend seminary now? Like I can continue to go on, right? And so they, they research the word of God, and with, with honesty for, for the most part, I believe these men are being very honest with the word of God, try to create understanding of the doctrine of sin and the understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit from the word of God in its context. But it's hard when you're looking at specific topics. John Calvin is one of those guys that existed a long time ago, and Arminius was a guy who existed a long time ago, and they were... They were really studious theologians of the word of God and, and, and would be categorized as systematized theologians. And they created systems of theology. Okay? Then there's, there's another over here. There's, there's biblical theology. Biblical theology can sometimes lock heads a little bit with systematic theology or at least challenge it in some regards. Biblical theology is the study to trying to understand who God is and what is he calling us to do in light of the text. And so you study the text in light of its surroundings, and so that immediate chapter, the surrounding chapters, the book, the the. so for Paul, if you're studying in 1 Corinthians, you're going to want to understand what, what 1 Corinthians has to say about a specific passage. You're going to wonder what 2 Corinthians has to say about it. Then you're going to want to understand what all of Pauline literature has to say about it. Then you're going to want to understand what the New Testament has to say about it. Then you're going to want to understand what all of Scripture has to say about it. Okay? So you, you start to see there's a bit of a challenge here in, in understanding a specific text. My desire for us this morning, I'm like, like, whoa, this is the longest intro ever. Like, <laughs> my desire for us this morning is to study this text in light of what the author of Hebrews was saying. When we dive into certain portions of this text, you're going to go to systematic theology. and Oh, I've read that, or I come from this background, I come from that background. And you're going to try to bring that to bear that this is a proof text for that system of theology. I would ask that you don't do that this morning. I want you to think about and have this huge question in your head. Why did the author of Hebrews put this here? Why was he, like, up to this point in the, in, in the book of Hebrews, it has been, like, super encouraging week after week. We have this great 
high priest. And it talks about in chapters 1 and 2 that Jesus is better than the angels because he's got way bigger power. The angels, they minister to the saints. Jesus made it all. And then the, the, the angels were great in bringing a message here and there to be spoken through the prophets. Jesus is the full revelation of God. And so we see Jesus is greater, Jesus is greater. Then he talks about Jesus and Moses. And Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses was this faithful servant in God's house. Jesus is the faithful servant over God's house as only the Son of God can be. Jesus is greater. Jesus brings us the greater rest. You got Moses led the people out of, out of Egypt into the wilderness. And the people in the wilderness were supposed to, to discover what it was to be, have the full identity of God brought upon them. That they were to be God's people. And they were to be identified as worshipers of Yahweh. And they failed to enter that rest. But Jesus brings this rest to us that we get to experience now. As we surrender our sin to him completely and fully, looking only for his redemptive work that is good in our lives, and we can approach the throne of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Now, how many of you are encouraged? Like, okay, maybe we need to do that again. Like, like <laughs> seriously, like, this is Jesus. I mean, this is like, this is why we come together and we sing these songs and we glorify his name. And we're so excited about Jesus. Now, now we bring all that to bear into this passage. Keep that excitement because of all of a sudden you go, this is about Jesus. No, this is about me. It's about Jesus. Then why does the author of Hebrews put this here? Great question. So glad you asked. Let's dive in. All right. If you don't have your Bibles open, you're going to want to open them up. I believe you're on page 1004 in the Pew Bible. If you didn't bring yours, I'm totally fine. App or lap, you know, get the Bible open, okay, and dive into the text. We're looking here this morning, and we're going to begin in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 11, verse 11 to 6, 3. We're going to see some interesting, peculiar things that the author does in writing this. In this first section, he's going to continue to address his audience. And I, I do argue that the book of Hebrews is the most well-written sermon in all of history. And he is going to address his audience in the first and second person. So who's my English people in here? What is the first and second person? I... Me, you, perfect, first and second person there. We've just covered it, okay? We, right? So that's that first. And so in these beginning verses, this first section, he is addressing them in the first and second person. This is important. And he says to them, concerning this, we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain. Since you have become dull, in hearing, quite literally, the text here means lazy. Theologians argue that the book of Hebrews is written to a people that have undergone intense suffering and persecution, and they're tired and they're weary. And in their tired and weary state, they have stopped to put in the effort and energy into studying the word of God, into knowing who Jesus Christ is, and living in light of that knowledge. 
quite literally what he is telling him here is that guess what? Your growth equals your effort. Hear that. Brothers and sisters, we are called to put great effort into the study and knowledge of the word of God. I don't get it. I mean, I got people who are Christians that come in and they'll, they'll talk with me and like, I'm not growing in the Lord. I'm like, well, how much time are you spending with God in the morning? Well, maybe five minutes. I said, like, what does that five minutes look like? Well, it's, it's this, unfortunately, pretty repetitive prayer. Are you opening the word? Well, maybe I'll read a psalm. Okay, when you read that psalm, what are you doing with that psalm? Well, I'm just reading it. Like, like God is going to, we treat God like a magician, you know, when we used to go to those little magic shows when we were kids and then they'll slide a hand. Like God's going to, you know, we're going to read that psalm. He's going to sprinkle some pixie dust over us and we're going to start flying based on, what? He's not this magic little magician that we're going to pull out of the genie's box and expect us. And we read this psalm, just a cursory reading, to God change our lives with it. We've got to dive into it. What is God saying? Who is God? What is he doing in this text? Who am I in light of who God is in this text? And what am I supposed to be? How am I being challenged? What efforts are we putting in in our time with God? He is challenging. Listen, you're, you're suffering. You're having, you're facing a hard time. But if you want your faith to grow, I'm going to challenge it by saying, if you're not putting in any time with God and challenge, he, how is he going to grow you up? Amen. This football season, praise God. It's finally football season. In my world, I'm a Nebraska fan. There's two seasons. There's football season, and then there's getting ready for football season, okay? It is football season. We got to go to Chelan High School scrimmage yesterday. But Elijah, was that the first practice you had yesterday? No. You've been practicing for a while. There's been lifting all summer. There was spring ball. Like, they did all this work, and they had to put a ton of work and effort into getting ready for this season. I'm telling you what, you might want to watch some Chelan High School football this year because it, it's pretty exciting. But all that effort and they work is growing them as football players and preparing them for this game. So that way when they walk onto this field in front of the fans, they're ready to go knock, knock some people over, run that ball, and have a great time playing the game of football. And we do that with our jobs. We understand that we got to go to school and we study in our jobs. And we know that we got to do continued training in our jobs so that we can grow as an employee and a person in our jobs. But for some reason, when it comes to faith, we treat it with this like flippancy like, well, if I've got time, I'll study this. Or if I've got time, I'll, I'll throw a couple of words up to God. And then get discouraged when we encounter hard times, we want to fall away from them. The author of Hebrews is saying, listen, grow up. Put some work into it. Get your back into it. Study the word of God. And not because you're trying to earn right standing with God, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And you recognize, my God is so good. And I want to live in light of his goodness. So I want to know more about him. I want to dive in. I want to put the work into knowing my God and living in light of him. The next thing he says here, as he continues this, he says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain it since you have become dull of hearing or lazy. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, 
But again, you have need to be taught by someone else the basic principle of God's utterances, and you've come to have need for milk and not solid food. So what is he saying? Is he saying that we all are to have the gift of being a teacher? No. By now, all of you should have reached this point of being able to give an account of your faith, an account of what God has done to change your heart and your life, and you've moved past this, this point of the beginningness of your faith. The more I studied this text, and I read folks this week, and I, I, I spent a lot of time reading this week in preparation for the sermon because I approached this with great humility, this text. It seems to me that the question kept coming up was, am I saved? Am I saved? Am I in or am I out? Am I in or am I out? And he's wanting the, the author of Hebrews to say, move past that. Get past that and say, I am all in for God and I'm living for God and I'm pursuing God and I want to understand the deeper things of God and I want God to change my life. This week, I'm mentoring an individual, and he asked me this wonderfully pointed question. And he said to me, Scott, what is the most important thing I need to tell somebody who's not yet a believer? And I said, the greatest gift God has given you to tell somebody about Jesus Christ is how God has changed your life. That he has taken you from being a person who wanted nothing to do the things of God to now have a heart for God to know his word, to dive deeper in his word, to pursue God in every area and aspect of your life. He has taken you from being a person who did not want to deal with other people to now who can't wait to talk with somebody about Jesus Christ, his power, his glory, his might. You see, the, this church was struggling with, there seems to be individuals in this church that are just stuck in this moment, like, I don't know if I, I'm in or if I'm out. I'm in or if I'm out. And he's like, get past this. Move on. Dive deeper. Go. Get deeper into the word of God. Understand what God has done for you. Understand this great high priest because it's exactly where he begins in this book. He tells them how great Jesus is. Now he's telling them, live in light of how amazing he is and share who Jesus Christ is and let him change your life. Brothers and sisters, some of you are there this morning. Some of you are struggling with this and you haven't moved past it. You keep wondering, am I saved or am I not saved? Am I saved or am I not saved? If you have believed in Jesus Christ and you believe that he is your savior, he has washed you clean from the sin, live in light of that salvation. Amen. Press on to know more what Jesus Christ has for you. That the Holy Spirit is changing all of your life so that you submit all of your life unto him. So that you know the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. That you know the power of God that, Jesus, that has been demonstrated through Jesus. That you're looking to Christ and Christ alone and you're desiring to live for him. The next thing he says here as he continues on in verse 13, he says, grow, basically grow up. For everyone who partakes of milk is inexperienced in the message of righteousness. He is still an infant, but solid food is for the mature, whose perceptions are trained, practiced to discern good and evil. 
Therefore, we must progress beyond the basic message. Let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us move on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith in God, and teaching about baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Listen, the author of Hebrews is saying, you have to put into practice what you know here. God has saved you from this, therefore leave it behind. Press on to deeper things. Press on to seeing and pursuing God in other areas of your life. He has saved you from this. Press on. Go deeper. Grow up. How many of you with your kiddos, right? It's our job, I believe, as parents to prepare our kids to launch as, as children of God. Not just in academic settings to go on to college or go on to, to, to successful, successful careers, but, but to, to launch as children of God and to pursuers of God. That's what we're attempting to raise here, is raise kids that want to pursue God in all of life. But it's, it's really discouraging. When we hit that, we sometimes run into those parenting moments when we're like, can we just get past this moment? Any of y'all have those moments? Like... The little ones, right? Can we just get past this, moment, this point where you scream at me for everything? Like, we can have a conversation. You would like to have something. You don't have to scream at me for it, okay? And then, and then as we move forward in, in, in ages and we get a little older, right, we want our kids to start understanding that the world is bigger than just their wants and needs, right? Where they begin to understand that, like, oh, I want to serve this person. I want to love this person. So I'm willing to sacrifice some of my own needs so that I can love these other people. And when we see that happen in our kids' lives, we're like, yes! And we celebrate those things because we know it's the work of God in them, and he's developing them and maturing them. The author of Hebrews is looking at this congregation and these people. He's going, you got to get past this point. you gotta, you got to want more for your relationship in Jesus Christ than just to keep asking him, well, God, am I really saved? Did you really do this work for me? Because that's not clinging to the confession. To cling to the confession, as we've been told in Hebrews many times already, is to say, okay, to cling to this confession is to persevere and to go into deeper things with Jesus Christ. To understand, yes, he saved me, and so now I no longer need to live bound to this world. No longer are we slaves to sin. I am a child of God. Therefore, as a child of God, I want to grow up and become mature in Jesus Christ. It, it, it's kind of like this portion right now is what my dad would call a right foot to the posterior region of me. Right? It's just a swift kick in the can. Like, because God is, Jesus is all this, don't settle for this. Go. And be excited about going. And now we dive into this portion of scripture that is quite puzzling why the author of Hebrews, okay, he gives them this exhortation to grow up in Jesus Christ and then he enters into this very serious warning. 
And starting in verse 4 of chapter 6, he says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk of the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But it bears thorns and thistles, and it is worthless and near to being cursed, as it, and its end is to be burned. For those of you whose minds went to proof text for whether or not you can lose your salvation this morning, that's not the intent of the author of Hebrews to create a proof text for that this morning. The author of Hebrews has been talking about how faithful Jesus Christ is as our high priest. The author of Hebrews is arguing for a very high understanding of Jesus. And the author of Hebrews has made it very clear so far that our faith is dependent upon him his work, his continued intercession, his once and for all sacrifice, his priesthood that will never end as in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ has been, like this big picture of Jesus has been painted for us. Now there's a challenge to us that we live in light of this, this truth about who Jesus Christ is. So what do we do with this warning I'm going to reference somebody that, I, that I, I tend to enjoy referencing and then I tend to enjoy listening to and then I got great respect for. John Piper addresses this topic. And he says, what is the danger here? And he says, the danger is real. The danger that is being spoken of here is eternal damnation. Now, I know some of you here this morning will want to argue with me over that. The language here is severe. It's impossible for them to once again come to repentance. And so I take this humbly. I take this as meaning that the person that the, who's this being spoken of is in jeopardy of eternal separation from God, hell forever. And yes, we do believe that exists in this church body. But notice something that takes place here. With this transition in chapter 4, we go from first and second person to third person. No longer does he say you, we, or I. He says they. Which is significant. He doesn't categorize his audience in this way which is significant for us to understand in light of this warning. Piper tells this story, and I think it's a great illustration that kind of sums up what this, the people that are being spoken of here. 
I've told this story once before, the vulture who spotted the corpse of a fox on a big hunk of ice floating down toward the Niagara Falls. He flies to the ice and he lands and begins to eat the fox. He watches the falls approaching and hears the warnings of danger. But he tells himself that he has wings and is free and does not need to pay attention to such warnings. He is destined for the sky. At at the last minute, he finishes his feast and spreads his wings, but he cannot fly because his talons have frozen in the ice and he is dragged over the falls to his destruction. And so it will be with people who have heard the warnings of Scripture to abandon their worldly lusts and pursue holiness, but who say, I have wings, I am a Christian, I can fly anytime I want to. The day will come when they may try and will not be able to repent because they are so hardened and addicted to the world they can't even feel one genuine spiritual affection. Pretty powerful image. I believe what the Hebrew author is describing is, as maybe even some are in that, sitting in that congregation as this sermon is being mentioned of people who think that they're in because they've had some emotional experience with God. But they have no desire for God. Let me tell you this morning, let me plead with you this morning. If you're sitting in here this morning and you think that somehow coming to a building on Sunday morning or putting money in an offering plate or making coffee or setting up communion is going to save you, it will not. If you're sitting here this morning and you have no affection for Jesus Christ, as I'm sitting here describing how amazing Jesus is, you're like, so what? You're in danger. And let me plead with you. Salvation is for those who surrender their lives to Jesus Christ and Christ comes in and saves them and gives them a new heart. And we not only have affection for Jesus, we understand that the only hope we have is in Jesus. And we love him and we adore him and we want to live all of our lives for him. And we struggle with living for him. But that is where our affection and our hope lies is in Christ alone. For I do believe there are a lot of people going to Sunday gatherings this morning who are on their way to hell. And I love you. And that is why I'm telling you it's not because I don't want I want you to have this abundant life in Jesus Christ. I don't want this passage to scare the living socks off you like, it, like it, the, the author's intention here. But you can say, no, I am a child of God. And though I struggle to live for my God, his grace is more than sufficient for me. So I think you're kind of getting at where I'm coming from. I think you're getting at that when I look at the book of Hebrews, I see this very high picture of Jesus Christ. And so I see our salvation, and this is just kind of where I land. My salvation has more to do with Jesus than it does me. And that seems to be replete through the New Testament. And so I, I lean in that direction. I lean in that direction of going, My salvation is secure, not because of me, but because of him, because he doesn't take a day off. 
because he is the great high priest who sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Because of his blood was more than sufficient. Because Hebrews 3.14 says, we have become, notice the tense of the verb here, we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Not false assurance. Note carefully, it does not say that you will become a partaker of Christ if you persevere. It says you have become a partaker if you persevere. The point is that persevering does not earn your participation in Christ. It verifies your participation in Christ. Perseverance is not a payment for getting into Christ. It is a proof that you are in Christ. Buse Fanning argues this from a grammatical standpoint. In the third class condition in Greek, here you go. Here's your Greek lesson for the week. There's a thing called evidence inference. That we evidence the faith that we have. We live our lives out in regards to how our heart has been changed. And if our heart has not been changed by God, we do not live as one changed by God. But if our heart has been changed by God, then we do live our lives out as one who has been changed by God, not perfectly, but with a passion and desire for it. We also see in Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, Christ has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. The Greek tense there literally means those who are being sanctified. It is this idea of a of an action that has begun in the past with continuing result. We are being sanctified. We are being changed. In other words, when Jesus died, he perfected a group of people forever. He has done this in the past, and it does not say that his death will perfect them if they get sanctified. It says that his death has perfected those who are being sanctified. It's done, and it's eternal. And this is the same kind of thought we see in 314. The pursuit of holiness, sanctification, does not earn us this perfection that Jesus secured for us in the past. Instead, the process of sanctification simply shows that we are among that number who are eternally perfected by the death of Jesus. So why? If, if, if I'm right, and again, I humbly present this to you because there are a great theologian who would disagree with me on this point. And, and my, my, my warning to you this morning is that if you are a person who sits there and says, I can lose my salvation, I think you're really in jeopardy of being that person who he's arguing against that you're going to sit there and spend your life going, am I in or out? Am I in or out? Am I in or out? When Jesus is saying, get over it, I saved you. Go, live for me. And so I, I'm not saying everyone who believes it, that's where they're at. But I'm saying there's a danger. And so hear me there. There's a danger of staying there. And then there's the guy who believes, well, I'm in. I got my golden ticket. I can live however I want. If you're a child of God, you have a desire for the things of God. And so if you're sitting here saying, I'm in, I got my golden ticket, but you have no desire for the things of God, are you really in? According to the scripture, the resounding answer is no. And that's scary and terrifying. 
So he goes on and he finishes this warning. And I believe there's two, diff- two different reasons why we need to heed this warning and why the, authors of the, why the audience of Hebrews needed to heed it. It's because one, he said it. <laughs> We're just going to go right He put this in there. That the people who he is speaking to should never be identified as this. Like, we recognize that if we're living those traits out, we are evidencing a non-existent faith. And that's a horrible and a scary place to be. The other thing, other reason, I think that this is there, is that the Piper says this in regards to the second reason. The other reason I believe that this is a kind of description that he gives in verses 4 and 5 of the person who can fall away from God. That person can be enlightened, have much truth and insight into the Bible and the gospel. There are guys like Bart Ehrman who know the Greek way better than I'll ever know it, but are on their way to hell because they deny the deity of Jesus Christ and the Jesus of the Bible. But he's a brilliant scholar and he knows the New Testament from an academic standpoint. He can have tested the, tasted the heavenly gift and be a partaker of the Holy Spirit, meaning the very Spirit of God can be at work in his life, convicting of sin, drawing to Christ, revealing truths, but he is denying those truths. He can also have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, sat under its influences from a mother and Sunday school teacher and pastor, and confessed it to be good. And he can have tasted the powers of the age to come. And he can say, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22, prophecy and cast out demons and do mighty works in his name. All this and yet hear the dreadful words in the last day. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. This is not what the author of Hebrews wants for his congregation. This is not what Jesus wants for his people. He wants his people to have passion to go deeper in his word. And if these people have no desire and no passion, they're more identified with those that are completely lost than they are identified with the one who are saved by Jesus Christ. I'm so glad he doesn't end this section there. It is heavy. Amen, Curtis. It is heavy. He goes on to say in Hebrews 6, 9, and 12, he's going to flip it back now. He's going to go from being, speaking in the third person to talking to them in the first and second person. And he says in verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation. Everybody breathes me. (sighs) Praise God. Praise God. For God is not unjust as so as to overlook your works and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. 
in John, especially in the Gospel of John and 1 John, Jesus, oh my goodness, makes it very clear that the identifying marker for the believer is a person who loves one another. Hebrews just confirmed that in a really, really big way. How can you know you have such assurance of your faith? Because look at this. You, do, you desire to care for the needs of one another. We're going to read later on in this book that they were going to prison to bring each other food and to minister to each other's needs. Like, when was the last time you and I, don't raise your hand here because it's going to get way too convicting, visited somebody in prison to, to care for their needs? Are you kidding me? That's like, these people didn't care about their reputations. They didn't care about what people were going to say of them. They were more cared about, worried about caring for each other's needs. Now, granted, the reason a lot of these Christians were in prison was why? Because of their faith. But guess what? It's kind of like, you know, dealing with you go to China right now to minister to other believers in China who are in prison. You're going to go and join them with the expectation of joining them in prison. These people could have had that same expectation that we're going to go minister to our brothers and sisters with the full expectation that since we're here being associated with them, we too could land in prison. But wait a minute, I have families to raise, I have a job, I've got responsibilities. Like they're saying that, listen, there's no doubt you love Jesus because of your love for one another that you exhibit for one another. The author of Hebrews wants to encourage them and give them a soft landing from a harsh rebuke. Grow up, he says. And I'm, gonna, I'm confident that you have a desire to grow up because you've already exhibited love for one another. Our church family loves in a very special and wonderful way. And those of you who are visiting this morning, so glad to have you. I just want to brag on our church family and how they've exhibited love. We had a dear brother in Christ here pass away this year. And our church family gave thousands of dollars to support him during his time without any work and employment. His church family paid for his employment, even though he wasn't able to come to work. This church family brought food, cleaned the house, and in his final hours, sat with him 24-7. And then just do this for Reuben. They did this for Bill. They rallied around Stephanie and encouraged her. They continue to be in prayer for Linda and Dennis. Right now we're fixing to, to, to care for meals and to spend time with Scott Wilmot as Nancy has to go to work. I mean, this is what this church body does. And I want to encourage you this morning. That love that you're showing for caring for the needs of one another is evidence that God has changed your life. And celebrate that. We should get pumped up when we share God's stories here. It's like, yes, we've been changed by God. We get to say, yes, God, you're at work in us, and we're imperfect, and we, we do it sometimes with selfish motives, but I still have this desire to care for each other. 
and meet each other's needs, and that should so encourage you. And so that soft landing should invoke us and to say, okay, I can receive the grow up message. I can receive that because I'm assured that I am a child of God. And if you're here this morning and you have no desire to care for the believers, you have no desire to be part of a church family, you have no desire to love others well, I'm scared for you. Because I can't give you that reassurance this morning. The author of Hebrews couldn't give reassurance to the congregation that he's speaking with if they had no desire to care for one another's needs. But for the vast majority in here, oh, I know, and, and I just love you so much. I am so grateful for how you care for one another's needs. So together, let's all receive the swift boot from God. It's okay. Like he says, grow up, get deeper. Okay, God, I can receive that. And, and, and for our kids, let's teach our kids what it is to be in the word. Let's just not read a scripture together or let's just not have them read a, a story from the Bible and not ask questions. Let, why? Why did God do that? What, what is the character of God in that story? What's God challenging you with this morning as you understand who he is and what he's doing? We can ask it. We start training them up young that when, they're, when they understand that when I open up the Bible, it's not just to flippantly read through it and check the box. And I'm speaking on my own kids this morning here. Okay? It's, it's so that they'll dive deep and they'll ask questions of the text and say, God, what are you trying to speak? And what is the Holy Spirit trying to teach me this morning from the word of God? That they grow up with that understanding. And for some of us who are new to faith, guess what? It's a great time for you to learn. And for some of you that know better and you've been treating God kind of cavalierly, his grace is sufficient to forgive you for that and say, and, and he's telling you, be assured of your faith and grow. Move past this point of am I in or am I out? Please join with me in prayer. Father God, I thank you. And Lord God, I just want to also want to just clarify very clearly this morning that there are some this morning that are not in and they need to wrestle with why and what must they do to be saved. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move right now in their lives and that they might surrender their lives and just pray to you and say, Lord, I believe that Jesus is the Christ who died upon the cross for my sins and I surrender my life to my King. And I want to live for you. And Lord, for those who are believers in here, May we become encouraged by our passion and desire to care for one another's needs and hear the calling of the author of Hebrews and ultimately from Jesus Christ. Get deep. Put some effort into it. Use a little elbow grease. Dive deep into the word of God and experience the beauty walking with Jesus. And Lord, I know that there are some in here this morning that have been hurt by the church, that have hurt by other believers. Lord God, I pray that they might 
begin to know the forgiveness and know the love that Jesus Christ offers. That those hurts and those feelings do not need to keep them from continuing on and growing in their salvation and loving the body of Christ. That we would care for one another, minister to one another, love one another. And in so doing, show the world that we love Jesus and we're his. And receive the message to go deeper. To understand this difficult teaching of having this great high priest. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Um, so at this time, we, 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 I talked about our God stories earlier. We're going to do, do some of our God stories. Um, and you're like, yeah. This is the, the, I've been told, like, Scott, your, your preaching's okay, but we really like the God stories. So um, we're now to the favorite part of the service, and our kids are coming back in. Um, and so this morning, can I borrow somebody's mic? Thank you, Don. Um, who, who's got a God story this morning? Oh, Lois is going to start us off this morning. Got so much to praise Jesus for. All right, guys, here's the next sermon. <laughs> we talk about this church family. I am one of the best examples of how much people here love me and everybody else. My husband passed away nine months ago, but they were there long before he passed away. We had other problems months before, and they were right there. And you know, just because Bill's gone, they didn't just dump me either. They're still there if I need to go to the doctor, whatever I need, someone is there to make sure it's provided. So I thank God for the love from these beautiful people here. And because of Jesus, that's the re reason we're this way. Amen. Nobody can take my salvation. Jesus saved me, people. I'm eating strong meat now, and I am proud of it. <laughs> so when the devil tells you you might not be saved, kick him in the butt. He's lying. Because once Jesus came into my heart, he's not going to leave me. So thanks to all you wonderful people that love me so much. This is an unexpected God story, and it just happened this morning because I had feelings and came into church this morning with feelings of fear like Scott had last night and um, heard exactly what I needed to hear, that he's, he has not left us, he's with us. But all we have to do is just look to him. There's nothing in the world we can look to to solve our problems. We just have to look to him. So thank you, Scott, very, very much. I keep asking myself, Lord, why me? Um, I wasn't designed or built this way, but... I feel like I need to be with my wife as much as I can. So every Tuesday and Thursday, I take the bus down to Wenatchee. And I guess I'm being observed because the bus driver that takes me down there turns to me when I get off and says, Don, I see you praying back there, and my wife and I are praying for you also. Wow. And at the uh, nursing home, 
I'm trying to care for my wife the best I can. And I hear these comments saying, God, Don, nobody's doing this to their, to their partners. You're faithful. And I think to myself, Lord, I made a promise to you 52 years ago that I'd take care of my spouse to death do his part. And I'm going to do that. Don't other people do that? I've got two today. Um, so this last Monday, we had a little prayer um, prayer evening for Young Life. Um, and one of my, uh, we call them campaigners, it's little discipleship groups that we have. Um, one of my campaigners boys wanted to come along, and so he came and um, saw us praying over the students of the Valley before school starts, and so that was really cool. Um, and then a couple days later, one of our... Um, one of my guys came to my house um, having some family problems, and he just came unannounced, and um, we were able to talk to him about it and, um, and pray with him about it, and he prayed with us, and it was just a really cool, uh, kind of really cool reminder that, that God's in all these situations, and we don't realize it until it's happening to us, and so... Yeah, that was a pretty cool thing that happened this week. So, um, we're visiting today a friend of Dave's, and uh, Diane, my wife's Diane, and I'm Mark. Um, I I just wanted to share a, a little testimony. I I think in First Corinthians twelve it talks about. There's different spiritual gifts that are spread around the body, and they're not for the people who have the gifts. It's they're for everyone else, you know. And and I think um, there are some people who are more interested in praying for healing, and I think maybe they're gifted in that. In First Corinthians 12, it talks about three things: faith, miracles, and healing. And they all seem to overlap a little bit with me, but. Um, there are some people in the community that are are interested in that, and maybe you've heard about it. I don't know. Maybe it's not. Uh, appropriate, I don't know, but it's they, we have a like Thursday night healing prayer sometime at, and, and where is it? It's at the, um, it's it's, it's been at the food um, place where, I'm it, yeah, Shalane Valley Hope. But anyway, last year uh, I brought Ray Dobbs. Probably a lot of you know Ray Dobbs. I brought convinced him to come, and he's not really that much of a charismatic type. And some of this this group is charismatic. Some aren't. I don't think it really matters. But he came, and we prayed for him, and he just got a good report a week or two ago because the cancer was melanoma had gone through his body. And I've seen several other people that uh, one other person that we prayed in that group and a couple other people that I've seen in other groups that have been cured of stage 4 cancer that look pretty much beyond hope. So, um, so I believe that's a real thing. And so if anybody's interested, maybe you could ask us or ask somebody who knows. And because uh, there's people who just have, feel like they want to, they have a gift for that sort of thing. And they just want to minister to the body of Christ. And those people may be in different churches, but, you know, we're all one body of Christ in the valley. So I want to encourage people and just to praise the Lord. And Ray Dobbs got a great report. So.
didn't know if you were going to know. Um, we have a little God story. Catherine, she's like, boy. So she's 13 and a half now, and 11 years ago today, even though she had been in our heart for, since, for 13, well, 13, over 13 years, and in our thoughts, since we were in high school, actually, we were dating, we just got to put it on our hearts, too, um, that we would adopt someday. Um, so today is Catherine's gotcha day. Her 11, so 11 years ago today, we put her in our arms for the first time, and that in itself is um, a miracle and just a good, you know, reminder of us being adopted into the family of, of God. So, 